This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And this next story is a series that we've been hitting on for quite some time, our Rule of Law series. And by the way, as you listen to this story, you're going to be wondering, well, when does the law come in? Well, in so many of our lives, the law just comes in. And when it comes in, we're not too happy. We're wondering how the heck it happened in the first place. Our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story from a Venezuelan named Luis Rodriguez, who also spent some time in London, which explains the interesting mix of accents you're about to hear. Now let's hear Luis's story. The specific things that my mother was involved in was starting the first school for burnt children. Burnt children in poor countries are deemed as an added weight that people don't want to deal with. And so they were usually left on the streets. And so the first school actually needed to be almost a boarding school. The incredible thing is the first time that this school was put together, the community didn't want these burnt children because of the stigma that it brought. The community grew to a point that children needed school. And so the school opened up to both non-burnt plus burnt children. And so it transformed the interaction to where the community embraced the school and loved having the burnt children within their community to the point that they started caring for them. And then suddenly all of that got nationalized. Taken over by the government. And shut down. Isn't that insane? The volatility of oil causes havoc on planning which causes issues with respect to management of policies. Especially if oil production is 25% of your country's economy, as Venezuela's is. That created a source of populism that got enacted into power with Chavez in 1998. The late president, Hugo Chavez. The perverse thought process that drives what's happened in Venezuela is that by making people have to rely on the government for the most basic of necessities, you've now created a way of very cheaply influencing power on people. I think 80% of all food sources now come from the Venezuelan government. Coupled by the fact that at that point in time, oil was at 100, so it's giving you plenty of money to enact policies that are not able to be withstood with any kind of reasonable oil price eventually. It all fueled this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the Messiah coming, us being given the power and it being enacted by the person because money is coming in that has nothing to do with him, but it's being attributed you know, the benefit to this person. Things started getting unraveled. So this is kind of 2002, 2003. There was a stop to all economic activity in Venezuela. And that continued to grow into these massive marches every day to enact our ability to say, hey, we're not happy with this. And that finalized with this kind of march towards the presidential palace and I, I remember, you know, you're talking about almost a million people marching. 
And what ended up happening was we were met by the National Guards and enacting force through bayonets, through snipers, starting kind of just taking people down. You know, I was quite young at the time. I was um, 20, 20, you know, 20, 21 at the time. Yeah, but my brother was 17. Were their parents okay with this? I'm not sure they were, but they didn't have a choice. Like, we really, really felt like this is, by being here, we're inspiring change. And running with my brother to be at the forefront of this, because I really felt like being at the front was where we wanted to be in this fight. And I, I, um, and then I, I lost him through all the, all the smoke. And I remember that, I, this, this, kind of just, because we were rushing against the, the National Guard, and suddenly there was this massive amount of smoke, uh, which was tear gas, and I suddenly lost him. I couldn't see him, and I just, this, my, my heart just kind of just sank, and I was like, what, I, what have I done? And then the person right next to me got shot in the head. Um, and, um, 19 people would be killed that day. Everything kind of came to came to this somber conclusion of do I really need to be here? Um, I found my brother thankfully. But now it was just a case of let's just survive and get out of here. Um, there's no there's no um, no bravery in, in being shot for nothing. And this kind of just cold uh, realization that maybe, maybe by doing this, we aren't achieving anything but just the death of ourselves. And so this is a very um, disheartening and, and um, sad, sad moment. Did Luis have any feelings, though, that he might have been abandoning the cause? Um, no. I, you know, at that, at that point in time, I, I kind of just said, I'm a foot soldier right now, at this moment in time in my life, and I can be more than that at some point, hopefully. And so... I'd rather enable being more than be a foot soldier right now in something that I don't believe in anymore. And what a story we're hearing, and that's Luis Rodriguez's story. And again, we're getting some insight into what happened in Venezuela. Because my goodness, it was a train wreck coming for a couple of decades. And so many countries who experience these kinds of problems, well, it's rule of law in the end that causes them. When we come back, more of our Rule of Law series, more of Luis Rodriguez's story, here on Our American Stories.
continue with our American stories and Luis Rodriguez's story of being a part of the grassroots uprising against Venezuela's socialist dictatorship. That is, until he concluded that his purpose in life was something more than being a mere foot soldier. My thinking was, at the time, energy is this kind of potent enabler for good. You know, you, you still need the tractor that is plowing the field to plow the field, but it's the fuel that gets into it that enables that tractor to move. The fact that petrol is what makes planes be able to be commercially viable. And so I want to be in energy, and where the rubber met the road for me was in looking to really learn it from the ground up. I felt that the issue in Venezuela was it gets politicized without actually knowing what's going on. And so I wanted to be in the ground at a well site understanding what was going on. So I joined ExxonMobil. And I worked with Exxon for a little while until it got nationalized. This was in 2005. And so when the nationalization was happening or is about to happen, basically anybody who had signed the referendum against Chavez, who was the president back then, got told, you know, that you're not longer going to have a job here. And basically a list was made of people who had signed the referendum and it was used quite loosely to basically influence choices of employment or not. And so this drove me to want to seek other horizons. That got amplified by the fact that having lived through being in the forefront of activism at the time, and seeing people die next to me. All these things kind of molded into just wanting to get away from it, to be able to breathe. And um, it's gonna be funny, but uh, funny in that the place that I got offered a job was by a company called Schlumberger in Fort Smith, Arkansas, to become a frack engineer. And I was like, I don't know what this frack thing is. I don't know where Fort Smith, Arkansas is, but you know what, I'll, I'll take it. I didn't have any big expectations um, because I didn't really know a lot about Arkansas. The people whom I spoke to about Arkansas didn't have a lot of nice things to say about it. And I really loved Arkansas actually. I found people to be so warming. The state is just beautiful. And the reality is, I was in a rig in the middle of nowhere, 20 hours a day. It could be more, actually. So, um, those first few years were a lot of hours. When I say 20 hours a day, I remember actually when Claudia arrived, my wife, I would get home sometimes at 10, 11, and leave at two to three. And that was very consistent. Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays. Uh, she didn't like it at the time, but she was supportive. You know, she made a lot of sacrifices, leaving family, leaving her work, and coming to join me. But I think we did them thinking there's something that we want to create together, and so this will mean sacrifices, whichever way we take it, uh, as long as as we know that this isn't it, that we're working towards something more, I think that gave us both comfort that we'd eventually make it to where we want it to be, the way that we wanted it to be. And 
very quickly got introduced to what you know an engineer is supposed to be doing, this is what you're really going to be doing, and, and most of it was just cleaning trucks and fixing trucks, just frack trucks. And so I started my life in the United States cleaning trucks, in essence, in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. Which he didn't exactly need an engineering degree for. You know, at the time, I just, I just felt joy at doing something and doing it for myself. And so I didn't feel like it was beneath me. I didn't feel... I, I just felt like, you know, this is something that I'm going to do the best that I can, period. And it ended up to where it was just this interesting flow of things where, you know, shale started to grow. Thanks to the fracking done by those frack trucks, where their shooting of high-pressure water down the wells opened up the dense shale rock and the oil and gas inside of it that previously couldn't be opened. And so I was the first engineer in Arkansas because at some point they needed engineering talent and then suddenly all these frack trucks started to break and I had an understanding of how they could be fixed better and that yielded growth into managing people. And so, you know, this, this kind of snowball effect of positivity around the growth of energy coincided with my growth within the industry, which was beautiful. It all came to a very abrupt end in kind of 2008-2009 when I had to let go of a lot of people I was managing in Bryan, Texas. At the time now we'd had Diego, my first son, and all these things were kind of pointing to I'd be moving all over the place, you need to settle and do something that not only goes for you and your immediate family but for people beyond that but very quickly realized, I think I can do this by myself, and I can do it in a way that is true to the way that I want to start a company. And thus, Rise Energy began, and this is October of 2014, right before oil and gas prices crashed, actually. Not because I thought they were going to crash. <laughs> and uh, at the beginning, it was pretty tough, just because you can imagine you're going out to raising money, and the asset that you're investing in doesn't make any money. Uh, because the costs were too high for, for the benefits of what it was producing. Literally, no play was economic with the cost structure that you had pre-crash and the crash commodity prices. There might have been one-offs, there might have been like exceptions, but it was the exception rather than the rule. So that made it tough because you're now going to pitch something that in essence is worth less than what you're going to pay. You had to have some conviction that things were going to turn around. I talked to a lot of people, uh, and, and you know, some rejected me flat out. So, uh, for X, Y, or Z. I mean, in some ways, you, you really do have to speak to a lot of people, and and that that both enables you to learn from those experiences and be better at the next experience and how you think about those interactions. I quit my job to do it, and so there was like. I was committed. I, I don't necessarily um, say that that's a good thing, but that's what I did. And you know, I had a dwindling bank account, and I had a set time that I needed to get it done. Uh, otherwise, I was going to have to go back and find something. And so, you know, whether that came through, I, I don't think I necessarily, you know, played the card willfully, but it probably just 
imbibed a lot of how I came across. Maybe at first energetically, hopefully towards the end not desperate. At the lowest point I was within only two months of what we were spending on a monthly basis, uh, which put a lot of unease on us and on me. Um, thankfully, ended up raising 11.4 million from three private individuals who really believed in me. And so that was the nascency, and it was just me, of Rise Energy in February of 2015. And then in January of 2016, a very large private equity, NCAP, came in and said, we love what you are doing and we'd like to increase that 20-fold. And we would not be here without them today. The team has grown from, you know, me in, in a coffee shop uh, to now 50 employees. The, the thing that I look forward most in my work is empowering people. And it was a big part of why I started the company. When you give people the right environment, just like magic. And that is so true, and we all know it when you give people the right environment. It is magic. And my goodness, what a story coming from Venezuela and watching the government run an operation and an industry to America where you've got all of these companies competing for customers, competing to lower prices, competing to do things better. Uh, Luis Rodriguez took advantage of that. And not without problems and not without worry, as we heard, just a few months away from not being able to pay the bills to someone coming in and investing more money. And that's what private equity folks do. And that's why if you're ever running a business and you ever need some money, my goodness, you like capital. You're willing to pay a return on that or you're willing to give part ownership for that. And that's, that's the joy of capital markets. There's human capital and there's capital capital. And to make the world hum and create all these jobs and create the economy we know and all the taxes that come from them, we've got to think about capital. When we come back, more of Luis Rodriguez's story here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories in the final portion of Luis Rodriguez's remarkable life story and life journey. Luis is one of the three million Venezuelans who fled their socialist dictatorship, and he has since worked his way up from cleaning fracking trucks in Arkansas to now having his very own energy exploration company. Let's continue the story. The United States, unlike any other country in the world, pretty much any other country in the world, Mineral ownership is private, and that is very important. At some point during the occupation of the West, the government decided to say, hey, we're going to give one mile by one mile, or depending if you, I think if you were married or something to that effect, you got two miles by, by, by one mile. And you're going to own not just the surface, but you're going to own everything that is underneath all the way to the center of the earth. Everything. 
the United States being the United States, people started saying, well, you know what, I really like the surface, but there's this other person who seems to really want to pay for my minerals. Such as this guy, Luis Rodriguez. So I'm just going to sell it. And so things started to get segregated. And so now the surface owner and the mineral owner might be two completely different people in two completely different states that have no relationship with each other. And then furthermore, you know, people would say, you know what, I'm just going to sell you my copper rights underneath me, but I'm going to maintain my oil and gas rights. Or I'm just going to sell you my gas rights and, and so on and so forth. Or I'm just going to sell you from surface to 200 feet below the surface and everything else I'm going to keep. So now you're dividing plots of land without us even getting into the fact that as you inherited them and people had seven kids and, and these had six and these had four and three, you're now dividing it into hundreds of pieces. And so the permutations are incredible from the standpoint of subdividing these things. But then the other interesting thing is that the way that these contracts get negotiated is I'm going to give you some sort of a monitoring incentive up front. You get that money, it's yours to keep. It can be from $1 to tens of thousands of dollars per acre, per one acre. It depends on where you're at and the prospectivity of what's underneath you. But then the contract also says, hey, you know what? We need to do something as far as producing your minerals in a given amount of time. And if we don't do that, then the contract goes null and you keep the bonus that we gave you and now you can negotiate with anybody else. If we do drill and we start producing, then you get a royalty stream of sorts. In general, it's kind of 20, 25% of the revenue is now going to be yours of anything that's produced there. So now you not only did get a bonus, but you also are getting a royalty stream. And so the ownership, when you get outside of cities, can be tens, sometimes thousands of acres. So just multiply by 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 20,000, et cetera. Codes. It can mint millionaires pretty quickly. You know, the United States has just been an incredible journey of empowerment that I think it's very difficult to see through in any other place. The fact that a person whom I had the resources from the standpoint of uh, a family that supported me. I had the resources from the, the standpoint that a family that invested in my education. But beyond that, got to, to the United States with pretty much nothing beyond that, which is a lot still. And was able to grow that into starting a business that is doing really well. I think that's a magnificent journey that speaks volumes as to what you can do in the United States that other countries don't necessarily have the culture to allow to do. I was called up for, for jury duty and I found it fascinating. I love the, the fact that the people are given the power to be enablers of the rule of law and I, you know, when I, when I went in I went in with this kind of conception of people telling me, you need to get out of this. Um, you know, like, it's just going to be a waste of your time. And it was actually a case that was going to take several days that I ended up being chosen. And just the people who were chosen took it very seriously. I took it very seriously. And I just thought of, that just speaks so much to what you want 
for yourself if you were put in that position. And it gave me great belief in the system again. It's like, you know, I actually, there's a lot of things that get said and, and there's a lot of things that are wrong. But the fact that these people took it that seriously and I can see that it happens over and over and there are subsets that, that might not, but they don't get chosen is wonderful. And that's not the case everywhere in the world. I think 90 something percent of, of the murders in, in Venezuela go without any trial which causes all sorts of perverse incentives because now the rule of law is in essence in anybody's hand, whoever has arms and whoever has power. And honestly, very tough case that I, that I got into, but just gave me a continued appreciation for how the rule of law works in the, in the US. The, the, the rule of law, even though it's, it can be very dry, is really the grease that makes the wheel turn. And so, to me, there's the fact that things are able to transact in a way that you don't even have to think when they transact is by the, the, the fact that the rule of law is upheld. And I wanna say respected, but it's the respect there's, there's kind of a chicken and the egg of respect and implementation of follow-through if it isn't. So there's that combination. I don't think that there's people in other countries that respect the rule of law less than they do here in the United States. I just believe that there has been a continuation of implementation of if you don't, these things will happen that allow for this kind of thought process of yes, why would we not respect it? Because these consequences would happen and you don't even think about the consequences, even though in the back of your mind, the fact that you think this needs to be respected is because at some point in time, somebody within your structure of influence thought about those consequences or saw them in action. And speaking of action, what does Luis think about all of the action going on in his native Venezuela? Will all of the government's failures, all of the protests, and most of the world calling for tyrant Nicolas Maduro to leave power finally lead to the end of this socialist dictatorship? I'm cautiously optimistic with things that are happening in Venezuela, but have been cautiously optimistic for a very long time now. And so I just, you know, I kind of temper my optimism with the fact that I've had it for 20 years and, and had to have decoupled it from the fact of where my life goes, where my career goes, is you know, in some ways disconnected from where Venezuela goes. But at the same time, everything that I do in my life right now and everything that I do in my career can in some way, shape or form eventually be of help um, when it's needed again. And we want to thank Luis for that remarkable story. And thanks to Alex and to Joey for all the good work they do on the Rule of Law series. And thanks for all the supporters who've made it happen. And we can't do it without you. And my goodness, what a story to tell everybody. He should be out around the country telling his story. And that's why we tell these stories. It's a fascinating thing to watch the media not cover catastrophes that happen around the world. And by the way, all those folks coming here to this country, what are they coming for? It's the rule of law. They don't know it, but that's why they're coming. And it's a remarkable thing our founders did with the Constitution. 
It's a remarkable thing. Our financial markets, the SEC, are, are guarantees to each other that we're going to pay each other when you swipe a credit card, that it works. All the things that we just take for granted. As he put it, and Luis put it beautifully, it's the grease that makes the wheel turn. And you don't see it. It's just there. When you're from someplace where there is no grease and the wheel doesn't turn, my goodness, imagine if Luis had stayed in Venezuela. The last 20 years would have been for naught. 20 years of wasted life, folks. Luis Rodriguez's story, a great rule of law series story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, the story of a song. And today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians. His Jersey Girl was performed by Bruce Springsteen. His All 55 was sung by the Eagles. Down There by the Train by Johnny Cash. I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love With You by 10,000 Maniacs. The Long Way Home by Nora Jones. I Don't Want to Grow Up by The Ramones. And Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix, mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and bums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or how you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? Because I uh, find a lot of ideas here and there's a lot of life going on around here. And, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know? You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon and really dark bars so i was drawn to the dark places everybody needs a different climate in order to create mine usually comes in uh if i'm talking with somebody in a bar or something i uh get a couple of loggers and uh try to stretch out in conversation i try to open things up and then uh, i try to remember it all later and then i write it down there's a, a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to 
meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night. Tell me, is it the crack of the pool balls? Neon buzzing. Loneliness is so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone. And how do you live with that? And how do you deal with it? Magic of the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. He was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagy Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. Swam all wings on run. Swam change my name. The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't. And it got to Tom. Because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13, you know. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things this that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. This is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits' most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt not the least on a lonely Saturday night. Here's I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. One, two, three, four. Well, I hope that I don't fall in love with you Makes me blue. Well, the music plays and you display your heart for me to see. I had a beer and now I hear you calling out for me. And I hope that I don't. 
turn in the fourth phrase i hope that you don't fall in love with me after exposing all of his fears of commitment the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met but now must face the realization she may return the favor you can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song he fumbles and worries and once he finally gets the confidence to face her well it's too late she's gone and he knows he's missed his shot And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said, listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song, I hope I don't fall in love with you. This is Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life. And God bless him for doing it because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a a, a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, we hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong. 18-year-old Nick Falk pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Falk, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank say district officials that involved another student and 12 chickens in all. Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at six, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours. Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key, his father says, came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd, unexpected places. And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse. This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923 in Chialis, Washington, As a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment, Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending act he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. 
But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecombe that made Oliver Porky Bicker a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon, the pilot arrived, and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. As thick black smoke began to bellow skywards, the crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974 to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed. Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires. And spray painted in the snow beside the tires, in 50-foot-high black letters, were the words, April Fools! The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecombe. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blows. Let me say it now. I don't know.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, whose writing, you're sure to be captivated by. I had returned from my tour of duty overseas, carrying my orders to take 20 days leave and report back to Camp Pendleton for the remaining seven months of my enlistment. I decided to leave a couple days earlier, and as I was packing up to go, my mother came to me and said, you know, your sister has been transferred from Porter State Hospital to Agnew State Hospital in San Jose, and that she thought it would be a good idea if I went by to visit my sister. Well, I started arguing with her right away. I mean, I had no interest in spending any of the remaining leave I had um, visiting anybody, and let alone my sister, who had left home where my parents had deposited her at Porterville State Hospital 15 years earlier. Because raising a, a young girl with a Down syndrome, uh, plus three boys and a husband overseas in the Marines, um, was a very difficult task. And so other than for a day or two, I had not seen my sister in 15 years. And I didn't know what I would do there. I didn't see any reason to go. But my mother kept insisting by telling me things like, well, you know, you're going to have to take care of her someday. And I thought, well, why am I taking care of her someday? I mean, you're her parents. I'm just her brother. And so um, we had this discussion. And I finally, in the end, I said, okay. And so I got my car and I drove down to Agnew. And I'd never been there. And when I pulled up front, the first thing I noticed was this building was surrounded by a cyclone fence. And I could see the patients uh, kind of wandering around or sitting around, not doing much, just walking around. There's not much for them to do there. And um, I got out of the car and I opened the gate and I went in. And when I, as soon as I got in there, they, some of these people started walking towards me. Uh, talking to me as if they knew who I was or they thought I was someone they knew. And I had this, I wanted no part of this at all. I just really had never been in a place like this and many of them were disabled by a variety of disabilities. And so I just <clears throat> got up the steps real quick and I entered in through these double doors into the entranceway. And yet, as outside, people were coming to me, recognizing me, pointing at me. They wanted to talk to me. And so I'm trying to work my way through a small gathering of uh, people around me as they're reaching out to touch me and to talk to me. And I didn't know what to do. I just kept trying to get my way to the nurse's desk. But there was one young man who was before me, and it was clear to me that he had something on his mind that he wanted to tell me. But the distance between the thought and the ability to speak was way too too wide. He couldn't get over it. And so as he was sitting there trying to form words or syllables on his lips, his facial muscles contorted and his head would jerk. And, and it was a painful expression on his face. But finally, I got to the nurse's station and the nurse said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like to see Tony McClellan. And they said, then who are you? I said, I'm her older brother, and I've just got a few minutes I'm stopping in to visit and say hello. So they said, well, why don't you sign the guest register, and I'll go down and get her in the ward. 
So I watched her walk down this long hallway, the main hallway, and the end of the hallway was completely darkened. And so she saw her open this door and she disappeared into what looked like a ward from where I was standing. So I took the guest register and I opened it up to, uh, down to Tony's name and um, I saw something extraordinary. And that was is that no one had been to visit my sister in five years. The last visitor she had had was my mother. What surprised me even more was the date at which Tony went to Porterville occurred while we lived in the area. And though we spent many summers coming through here on our way to Southern California on school vacation, we never had any idea that she was now living there and my parents never made any or showed any interest in stopping and seeing her. And I felt, I felt this sense of shame I mean, I didn't know Tony. I was, I was a year older. Um, we lived at home together for five years until my mother just couldn't handle the absence um, of, of help and the strain of having a daughter with Down syndrome and three boys. All of a sudden, I heard my name called, and I turned around, and there was the nurse. And she was standing there holding the hand of this small, young adult girl who was holding this teddy bear. And I walked over, and as I stood in front of her, I remembered her. I remember mostly from the picture, the oval picture of her on my mother's dresser. She had two. She had one of Tony on the front lawn down at Camp Pendleton, and one of the two of us. And Tony was in, like, a Sunday dress, and I was wearing the traditional blue shorts, navy blue shorts with the blue suspenders, a white short sleeve shirt and a bow tie. And the two of us were standing next to each other on the lawn. And that comprised my entire memory of my sister. She was short, hair was flaky with dandruff. The dress was colorless and way too big for her. Her hair was cut in places like this that's not styled. Her hair was just cut. And she was standing with this kind of bewildered look on her face when the nurse bent over at the waist and turning to Tony, she said, Tony, this is your brother. And immediately she stepped forward and threw herself into my legs, hugging me and crying, my brother, my brother, my brother. And I'm standing in the middle of this lobby, looking down on the top of her head, she was so small. And I'm looking down on the top of her head, and people are kind of gathering around. There's a commotion going on. There's something happening here. What is this? And so pretty soon I had I had spectators and the nurse and I and Tony crying, and I didn't know what to do. I you know I was just a 20-year-old corporal. I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do. So I bent down, and I got down on one knee, and I freed her arm from around my leg, and I looked at her. And she had big eyes, and wet with tears, and this teddy bear and, and the face was clearly a Down syndrome child and I said Tony Tony settle down here I'm, stop this Tony Tony take it easy just relax here just take it easy okay just stop crying stop crying and so she tried to kind of hold it back and then I said to the nurse can we get out of here get, can we get, just get out of this place for now and she said certainly so I said to Tony I said Tony she and I go get something to eat. You want something to eat? And she goes, oh, hamburger, hamburger. I'm like, hamburger and a Diet Coke. And I said, okay, 
So we left, got in a car, and I drove to this restaurant. Ordered, ordered just what she wanted. She knew what she wanted. She wanted a Coke, no ice, black coffee, uh, french fries, and a hamburger. And she wouldn't give the menu back to the waitress because she wanted everything that had a photograph of it. And then she was pointing at trays going by with food on and she was pointing she wanted to eat that. And she just seemed to have this kind of ravenous appetite in her eyes, but she certainly wasn't skinny. I mean, she wasn't malnourished or anything. So the nurse brings the food, uh, the waitress brings the food, and I'm sitting there trying to think of something to say. I, mean, I really didn't know what to say. And she just was really happy just eating the food. She was eating like a crab. She had alternate hands going in and out with, with hands, feeding herself. And finally, in the middle of her eating, she looked up at me and with this alert look in her eyes and said, bathroom, bathroom. I said, bathroom, bathroom, you need to use the bathroom. And she nods her head up and down, which was most of the communication she had was either facial expressions or nodding her head. And now she's nodding her head. She has to go to the bathroom. And the first thing that went through my mind is, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And when we continue more of the McClellan files, and again, we told you that you may not know him, but his storytelling, his voice, my goodness. Well, you'll hear more of this story, what happens next. Bob McClellan finally reunites with his sister. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We put every kind of story up on the air, and our favorites are yours. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Bob McClellan's story continues after these messages. stories and we continue with the McClellan files you're listening to Bob McClellan and he's in a restaurant with his sister a sister he hadn't seen in a very long time a sister who happens to have Down syndrome let's continue where we last left off so I quickly got up and I said okay well let's go before she got up though she took her napkin and folded it neatly she moved her plate and her drink into the center of the table, cleaned out her little area there, and climbed out of the booth. 
and reached up, took my hand, and we walked to the back of the restaurant. So we get to the back of the restaurant, and I've got two doors there, obviously, and I point to this, the door that said, women. And I'm pointing to it, and I said, now this is women. This is where you go. You go in here, you understand? Women, you're a woman, you go in here. Now, if you get any problems in there, there are other women in there. Ask them to give you a hand if you need any help. I'll wait for you out here. So she just nodded her head, seemed to understand what I was talking about, and disappeared into the ladies' room. So I stood there for a while and waited anxiously. And finally she came out and everything seemed fine. And we returned to the table and continued with our meal. I think the thing that stood out the most to me were the reactions of the people in the restaurant. I mean, clearly she wasn't welcome. She made other people feel uncomfortable. There was a couple walking through the restaurant and her kids were staring at, at Tony and the mothers admonishing them saying, you know, don't stare. It's not polite to stare. Just be glad, you know, that you have all of your fingers in pose and, you know, and just don't pay any attention to her. And it made me very angry, um, much to my surprise, but it brought back a memory one time when Tony was with us for a day. And um, I was just a small boy. And my mother comes running into the room and my sister had gotten out and says to me, your sister's being harassed by some kids across the street. Get out there and take care of those boys and bring her in immediately. So I jumped out of my chair and I ran over the air and I pulled this kid away from her and I pushed him to the ground. I grabbed the other kid and threw him to the ground. I gave him a kick, kicked him a couple times, took Tony by the hand and I walked her back in the house and continued on with whatever I was doing. And that's what that reminded me of. I felt like just getting out of that chair and throttling these kids and these people like my sister's a sideshow freak. So anyway, I got back to the booth and, and um, Tony finished her meal and we left. And so I was getting on at a pretty good pace. I wasn't going to be too late to pick up my date and head to the city for this party. And until we got to the grounds of the hospital. And once Tony realized where we were, she got really anxious and upset and she started going, no, no, no. And she's, I look over and she's got a grip on the handle of the car door and she's holding onto the seat. And, uh, and I said, what's the matter? She could go with you. Go with you, my brother. I said, you can't go with me. I said, are you kidding? No, you can't go. No, go with you, my brother. And it was clear to me, she did not want to go back to the hospital. She just kept repeating the same thing, and I kept trying to be rational. I kept saying, no, you can't go with me. I have some place to go. I have no place to put you. This is where you live. This is your home. This is your home, and you're going home whether you like it or not. I've got some place I've got to go. And so when we got there, you know, I had to get out of the car, and I had to go to the other side, open the door, and try to coax her out. She just wasn't going to budge. So I found myself with the decision either I got to take her by the arm and yank her right out of the car and drag her up the stairs, or I have to reach in and pick her up bodily and carry her up the stairs. But a third idea got to me, and I said, Tony, and I got down close to her, and she's sitting there in the car looking at me. She's very upset. And I said, Tony, you come inside, and I will come back, and I'll visit you. 
I'll come back and see you again. And she's crying. And so I'm trying to appeal to her and say, you know, come on, come on, I'll come back. Come on, I'll come back. And so she started to kind of get out of the car and I had her by the hand and I'm reminding her that I'm her brother and I'm family and I'll come back and I'll see her. Well, the nurses came out. Oh, well, as soon as the nurses came out, she just went crazy. So they're pulling her. I'm pulling her. They're holding her by the arms, trying to move her to the steps and into the ward. Tony's crying. She's trying to pull away, go with me. And uh, we get up the stairs and we get in there and the nurses manage to get her grip off of me and usher her down the hallway. And I immediately turned around and left and I went out and I got in my car. I, I, I had to... I had to get my composure. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what had just happened. But I did know that the scene with the nurses was something I remembered that came back to me sitting there in the car was when we dropped her off. She was five and we drove all the way out to the desert to Porterville. And um, there was just, my baby brothers were infants and my mom and my dad and me in the station wagon. And we spent this night in this motel and, and my mother just kept crying. She was sitting in front of the dresser, combing Tony's hair and putting ribbons and bows in it. And I'm standing in the doorway of the motel. I was over in the pool and my mother was in there, you know, crying and Tony was smiling. And and then the next thing I know, we're in the car and we drive onto another campus of enormous grounds and long sidewalks and white-coated people walking around and multiple buildings. and. It looked like a life from right off the cover of a brochure. I mean, you would have thought you were looking at yeah, <laughs> some picturesque, bucolic, pastoral place where everybody's dying to go. And so we get there and we pull up outside this building. And my mother gets out and she's walking to the sidewalk and the nurses come out. And then they're talking and they're talking back and forth. And then... The moment came when the nurses came and took Tony's hands from my mom and turned to start walking her inside. And Tony rightfully sensed something bad was going to happen. And so she starts pulling and crying. And my mother, unfortunately, had the terrible task of turning her back on her and walking back to the car to get out of there because nothing, nothing attractive, nothing purposeful, nothing happy was going to come out of this scene. I was in the back of the wagon and I'm looking out the back window as if I got a view. I'm looking at a movie and I see them taking Tony back in the back and they open up this door, this building, and she disappeared inside as as we drove off. And that's what had just happened. And so I sat there and I got the car started finally. I lit a cigarette and I I headed off to the city. And I thought about my promise to come back and see her. I'd be back in Mountain View uh, when I got discharged. I was going to college. I had seven months left to go. So I figured, well, I don't have to worry about this now, but I'll deal with it later. And somehow or another, the thing about the promise kept nagging at me because I knew that I made this promise to her and that if I didn't come back to see her, there would be no one going in my place. As I drove to the city, little did I realize at all that this encounter would alter in an unanticipated and unplanned fashion the direction of my life for the next 47 years until she died. And um, when I got out, after seven months, 
I did go see her. And I went to see her every Saturday. And our relationship grew from that. And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the voice of the American people. Well, we don't need screenwriters here, folks. Your stories are better. Bob McClellan's story, his sister's story, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, well, most of us want to avoid. Uh, We worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's. Even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them, they just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's is just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause. And he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit. And a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Wentzville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple mm-hmm. more of you, even. Yes. So yep. who else do we have here? Hi. This is Chimera. This is Sierra, and this is Kai. Gotcha. And there's one hiding below yes. in the back there. So. Let's go. <laughs> so... 
um, you're about to, uh, we come in, you're packing up because mm -hmm. you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the street. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord... Our landlord didn't pay the mortgage and they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh my gosh! And then, how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, almost a year now. A little over a year. Yeah, we went oh to our, we went to our mom's. Her mom had bed also. We went yeah, there for a little bit, and then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills and I was giving what I could right. and it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're working. Yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know? pretty, pretty much so. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. And now the kids are in school? Yes, yes sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh my gosh. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He's yeah. happy, just turned five. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. And there's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around if that makes sense so how about uh meals what you see is yeah a lot of mark but what you see on the table is what we have got a, our meals right there uh, what is that like a skillet thing i can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in yeah well you guys are smiling it looks like you're making the best of it not much can do right mm -hmm. oh my gosh I mean, it's not easy to smile mm -mm. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. <sighs> yeah, you still feel like you failed oh, yeah. somewhere. Right. Don't dump it. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, when you're doing the American Dream and you're you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes and they're going to school and their friends stay the night, and then you get somebody that that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money and then lets you continue to think that you have a home, and next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it, saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home, so half of our this really what you see. Except for one small storage shed is all we have left of home. Yeah. Everything else, um, we couldn't move it in two yeah. hours. That was it. I, I was once evicted and given a half an hour, so I know it happens. <laughs> I can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids and a whole family and having to move. It was just me. Man, my heart goes out to you. What would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel? Because this is, this is a face of homelessness that they don't see. Um, put a smile on for your kids and, and, and make the best that you can. 
you know, and and, and pretty much like like us, if you're gonna cry, try to except for her right now. But if you're gonna try to try to go yeah. into the yeah. bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it, because you know, dads ain't supposed to cry, and yeah. and that's mom's job, I guess, to cry. Yeah, it's okay right. to cry. <laughs> but you don't know what anyone's going through or how they get where they're. At. Oh yeah. yeah, people look so at you. Don't and, make the assumption that yeah, you know. Don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home, you know it. What the economy is nowadays, a lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making thirty dollars an hour, but they can't they can't make the ends meet with children and, and so, so they end up in these hotels, which, as we started, it's still better than the streets. Yeah, that's that's the that's the main thing. That's why you know it, it, you don't want to be here, but but you you got a roof over your head and and, and keeps everyone together. Yeah, my daddy always told me before he died, home's what you make it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I go to work and I come in here, I take my shower and I play with the kids and then. God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yeah. Yep, you sleep yeah. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us, or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um stability yeah stabi for stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Uh, my father passed. He passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, uh, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. Oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. Right. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent, what we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, what we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, so, you don't have that, I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. One more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and they take a lot of flack for it. Right. I will go. Well, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. Um, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but... No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you are listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People. And Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. Was just, it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. And my goodness, 
that wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion, bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story here on Our American Story.